As we come to God's word, let us pause and pray and ask for God's help. Our God, we give glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for your great salvation. As we come to your word this morning, we pray we'll have a greater appreciation, a fuller understanding, and a greater love for Jesus Christ and all that you've done for us in him. Please speak to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I said just last week, our big theme for Jonah is God's sovereign mercy. God's sovereign mercy. And just last week, as I said, we finished with Jonah hurled into the sea um, to drown and to die as judgment for his rebellion. just realized, I'll, I'll put this mic on. Sorry, Colin. Um, I forgot about it when I was playing. Um, you'll give me a minute to do this. <clears throat> yeah, so we left Jonah, hurled to the bottom of the sea, um, left to drown and to die as judgment for his rebellion. But this week, as we move into chapter 2, we see Jonah did not die, But he was shown mercy by God so that he could share God's mercy. And I believe that's the same for us today. God shows mercy to us so that we can show mercy to others. I think this principle is true in in a lot of areas in life. Often our personal experiences become our passion for helping others um, with a similar experience. So often people who have experienced um, grief or bereavement will become passionate about helping others through bereavement. Or perhaps those who, who fundraise for a particular charity or cause, those people will often have been impacted by what those charities represent, whether that's perhaps cancer or special needs or mental health or some other charity. When I did some counselling training, I was really struck that most people in the course had a, a significant life experience that wanted them to be equipped to help others going through similar life experiences. And the same is true spiritually. God chose mercy to us. We experience God's mercy so that we can share God's mercy to others. The setting of chapter 2, we find at the end of chapter 1, verse 17. Look at it with me. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the setting of chapter 2 is the belly of a fish. Now this is more than a little strange, but we have no need to doubt the information. Jesus himself um, confirmed this truth in the Gospels. And we shouldn't miss the wonder of what has just happened here. 
Jonah was hurled into the sea, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Other translations say that God provided a great fish, or God arranged a great fish, or God assigned a great fish. At just the moment Jonah was hurled into the sea, God had arranged, he had appointed this great fish to be there at just the right time and swallow Jonah up. This was no freak accident. This is a God who is fully in control of all things and a God who is relentless in his pursuit to show mercy. So Jonah is swallowed by this great fish. He remains in the fish for three days and three nights. And I guess this time allowed Jonah to reflect on what had happened so far um, from God's call and commission right at the beginning of chapter 1 to getting on the boat to the storm to being hurled into the sea. And as Jonah reflects, what we have in chapter 2 is a prayer or a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. If you're familiar with the psalms, you will know it reads very similar to a thanksgiving psalm. And this prayer from Jonah is really the, the bridge or the transition from Jonah's rebellion to Jonah's compliance. You may remember from last week, um, Jonah was sleeping on the ship as the sailors were praying to be saved. And now as Jonah's life was almost taken from him, he has finally woken up and started praying. So we'll take um, some time to work through the prayer and then we'll try and make some applications from that. So let's look at the prayer. Look at verse 2 with me. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. In spite of Jonah's rebellion, the Lord has not left him. Jonah cried out to God, and God answered him. And it's, it's worth noting just here, if you belong to the Lord you cannot go too far that there is no way back. No matter how distant you feel, no matter how disobedient you have been, when you cry out to the Lord, he will answer you. God doesn't give up on his people. And it seemed actually that this was really Jonah's fear, that God would give up on him. He said, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, now, she always known as a, a place after death away from the presence of the Lord. And as we go through, you'll see there's a lot of emphasis on death in this prayer. Jonah was hurled into the sea and he came very close to death. But more than that, it seems that, that Jonah thought he had come close to, to spiritual death out of God's reach. But he was not out of God's reach. God heard his voice and God saved him from death and judgment. 
And from verse 3 then, Jonah recalls the whole traumatic incident of being hurled into the sea. Verse 3, he says, For ye cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. In the language here is, is death language, the deep, the heart of the sea, the flood surrounding, all of this building up the, this picture that, that Jonah was in a place with no means of escape. In verse 4, we see more clearly that, that Jonah's fear was that he was, was away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. He, he has a, a fear of, of being away from God's presence. Now that's funny, isn't it? Because that's the very thing he wanted. But now he has realized that actually that's the most fearful prospect of all. And he does have hopeful determination to still be in God's presence. The holy temple there is referring to the presence of God. We go on, verse 5, he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. And again, it's this constant emphasis and building up this picture of death through the water, the deep, and the weeds. And there's no escape. It's closed. He's surrounded. He's wrapped. Some would say the, the surrounded and the wrapped is, is to be a picture of grave clothes. And he's come to the root of the mountains. The root of the mountains was known as, as the doorway to the grave. And then Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars had closed upon me forever. Jonah had hit rock bottom and there was no way of escape for him. He's realized his rebellion. He has realized he had turned away from the Lord. He's realized he deserves the Lord's judgment. And in fact, he deserves to be away from the presence of the Lord forever. And yet, Jonah prays, yet, despite his rebellion, despite the fact he deserves the Lord's judgment, despite the fact he deserves to be away from the Lord's presence, yet, O Lord my God, you brought my life up from the pit or from the grave. Now this is one of two key and standalone statements in this prayer. And this one here just reads so matter of fact. When Jonah was trapped with no way of escape, God lifted him up from the grave. And this is the, the big turning point in this prayer or, or this psalm. Before the focus was all on death, now as we move on, the focus is on life with God. 
Verse 7, Jonah is now back to the temple. He's now assured of the Lord's presence again. But it seems, even in these next couple of verses, that there are hints that Jonah's focus is still misplaced. He says, verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And it seems that he's, he's bringing attention to himself again. He's, he's leaning towards taking control of the whole situation again himself. And then in verse 8, he, he contrasts his own piety with that of the other sailors. He says, those who pay regard to fian idols. That's the sailors who were, who were praying out to, to other gods. He says, they forsake their hope of steadfast love or or mercy. And he contrasts the sailors with verse 9, But I, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I suppose we, in credit to Jonah, he was hurled into the sea. He didn't see the, the other sailors respond in worship. But you would think as he remembered those sailors, and as he remembered the danger that he put them in, and as he has just experienced the Lord's mercy himself, escaping from death, surely his first thought of these sailors should have been, Lord, have mercy upon them. We'll see as we, in a few weeks in chapter 4, he, he really hadn't grasped God's mercy on his life. But for now, and in terms of the mission, we are back on track. And Jonah finishes then with the second key statement. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knew that his salvation from the depths of the sea was of the Lord. And he now knew that regarding who else God may save, that too was in God's control and not his. And when Jonah finally realized this, then verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So God appointed the fish to swallow Jonah and then God appointed the fish to vomit Jonah up. So Jonah is delivered, he is back on dry land, and he is set again on God's mission. I said at the beginning that Jesus referred to this incident in Jonah's life. In Matthew 12, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were wanting a sign from Jesus to prove who he was, despite the clear and obvious evidence from his life on earth. And Jesus responded to the Pharisees by saying to them, he said, an evil generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart 
of the earth. And so Jesus is saying that the, the greatest sign you can be given, in fact the only sign you need, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are wanting salvation, if you are wanting deliverance from death and God's judgment on your sin, then look no further than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died to take the punishment for our sin. He died to take God's judgment. And God raised him from death again, offering life forever to all who will believe. And if the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, with all its evidences, with all its eyewitnesses, with every testimony century after century, and generation after generation, if that does not convince you to turn to God for salvation, then frankly, nothing will. And this is what Jesus was saying to these proud Pharisees of his day. And that is what I want to say aloud and clear today. Salvation all hinges on how you respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I urge you today, if you are here, and you might say you're wanting salvation, you're looking for salvation, then look no further than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's take a few minutes and make um, some applications from Jonah's prayer for ourselves today. I'm going to use those two key statements. So those two key statements from the prayer, the first one, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And the second one, salvation belongs to our God. So let's think about the first one. You brought my life up from the pit. And this brings us to our theme that we mentioned at the beginning. God has shown mercy to us so that we can show mercy to others. We might say we have been delivered so we can declare. This prayer of Jonah has reminded me of, of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Whereas Paul says, and we can apply this to all believers that you were dead in trespasses and sins. Christian believers, we today who are Christian, we were once dead at the bottom of the ocean, as it were. We were surrounded, we were trapped, we were ensnared with our own sin. And because of our sin, Paul says, we were all deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath was rightfully coming to us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and seated with him in the heavenly places. Can you, you see the similarities? We were dead in sin. 
We were content going our own way in life, but heading towards death and judgment with no way and no prospect of escape. And yet God reached into our lives and he lifted us from the pit of our sin. He saved us from his judgment and he placed us in his very presence. We deserved God's judgment and wrath. And instead, God has given us his mercy and his grace. And if we have truly understood the undeserved mercy of God in our lives, then we wouldn't wish God's judgment and wrath on even our worst enemy. But rather, now that we have experienced God's mercy, sharing God's mercy becomes our passion and our drive. And I believe that indeed is God's purpose for us. Jonah experienced God's mercy at the bottom of the ocean so that he could share God's mercy with the people of Nineveh. And of course, this has always been God's purpose for his people. We we think of God delivering the Israelites from Egypt, from the sea to the, the dry land. And again, we could make many similarities there. But he delivered them that there might be a kingdom of priests a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. He delivered them that they would be a light to the nations. And as Peter, in his letter, quotes from Exodus 19, he says that God delivered his people, why? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. You come to the Gospels, you think, think about the woman at the well as an example in John 4. She came to Jesus with her colourful and moral past. She experienced the mercy of God as she interacted with Jesus and was welcomed rather than judged. And what did she do? She went into the town and she said, come and let me tell you about Jesus. She experienced God's mercy so she could go and tell and share God's mercy. One more example, the Apostle Paul, who was content persecuting Christians. He was rebelling against Jesus Christ. He was deserving of God's judgment. And you'll remember how on the road to Damascus, through divine mercy, the risen Christ appeared to Paul and his life was changed forever. And as Paul reflects on his own conversion, and when he's writing to the Galatians, we looked at this in our prayer time last week, Galatians 1.16, Paul says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul was shown God's mercy so he could share God's mercy. We have been shown God's mercy so that we can share 
God's mercy. And we share God's mercy knowing, and this is our second key statement, we share God's mercy knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God's exclusive right to direct and command and determine the times, the terms, and the limits of salvation. Now, because salvation belongs to God, then we share the mercy of God equally and evenly to those whom God brings in our path. You know, as we think about sharing the mercy of God, we can often think about the people who seem more likely to respond to God's mercy. Or perhaps we think of, of those and we think, well, it's unlikely they'll ever respond to God's mercy. Or perhaps we, we, we think of those who are more or less deserving of God's mercy. Or perhaps we think of those who are more or less in need of God's mercy. There's no one who deserves the mercy of God. Otherwise it wouldn't be mercy. There's no one who does not need the mercy of God. Because salvation belongs to God, we share the mercy of God equally and evenly to those whom God brings to our path. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, we can be patient. We don't need to become frustrated when those um, people didn't respond that we were so sure they would, because that's not up to us to determine. And we're patient with those who are taking time to understand who God is, who they are, and their need to turn to God for mercy. We're not forcing anyone. We're not pushing anyone over the line. No, salvation belongs to the Lord. We share the mercy of God and we trust God to bring them to the point of crying out to him for mercy. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, we can have confidence as we share the mercy of God. Conversion, salvation does not rest with us. And I don't know about you, but that um, comforts me time and time and time again. We do what is required of us. And yes, I believe with a, a sense of urgency, but we don't panic and we don't despair and we're not crushed with the burden and the responsibility. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. He will do it. And finally, because salvation belongs to the Lord, we give him our thanks and our praise. Don't fool ourselves. If we see anyone come to Christ, it's not our effort or determination it's not our ability to explain or our persistence with people, our passion in prayer. 
No, God chose those people before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. God sent Jesus at the right time, Galatians 4. Jesus came willingly to die for the sins of the world, Philippians 2. God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8. And that same Holy Spirit will convict men and women of sin and righteousness and judgment, John 18. That same Holy Spirit will cause people to see who Jesus is and their need of him, 2 Corinthians 4. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we give him all our praise and all our thanks. And that phrase brings us right to the end of time, doesn't it? As John received that vision of heaven um, where we will experience final and complete salvation. Here's what we read in Revelation chapter 7. John says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, all those whom God himself has chosen. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let us pray together.